This is the High Impact Leadership Podcast. Bringing vision into action. Josh Veneta is a leadership and business growth coach. I decided that I wanted to have a bigger impact. Bigger impact. Fueled by helping individuals and organizations thrive. Engaged with a new passion. Josh is a proven business leader. To help others succeed. Over 15 years experience in helping organizations put vision into action. Where we provide tools and wisdom that help leaders and their organizations to thrive. Strategy. Strategy. Consistent execution. Execution. Leadership. That's what coaching actually is. It's an unlocking of what's already there. This is the High Impact Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of High Impact, a podcast for leaders. My name is Josh Veneta, Strategic Advisor and CEO Plus Leadership Team Coach. Today, my guest is Mike Goldman. Mike is a leadership team coach and the number one best-selling author of two books, Breakthrough Leadership Team and Performance Breakthrough. He's a TEDx speaker and speaks internationally to groups of business leaders, such as the Young Presidents Organization, Vistage, and the Entrepreneurs Organization. During his 35-year coaching and consulting career, he has worked with clients including Disney, Verizon, Chanel, and Polo Ralph Lauren. His insights have been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, and Chief Executive Magazine. He also is the host of the Better Leadership Team Show. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. You can tell I'm host of a podcast. I've got my my you know my my headphones on and and my microphone and and uh, you know. He's ready to go. So, Mike, I'm a personally a very big believer that healthy leaders create healthy teams and healthy organizations. In your experience as a coach over the past several decades, talk about how important it's been in seeing leaders be disciplined and accountable to themselves or to a coach um, and how that kind of fuels the, a healthy team, which is really a lot of what you, you uh, the content you produce um, in the areas you're coaching in. It is critically important in fact so important that in my my latest my last book and 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 my coaching model i talk about the six pillars of building a great leadership team what i call a breakthrough leadership team and the first pillar is mastering self-leadership because i don't believe you can lead a great team i don't believe you could be part of a great team if you have no idea how to lead yourself. And as the leader, you're the model, right? You're the model for the rest of your team. So I think it's all got to start with self-leadership. In fact, I worked with a a client a number of years ago, a, a flooring company, and the CEO was angry all the time that his team wasn't accountable, that his team would commit to things and not get them done. And I knew why, and I had to show him why. And it was because he did the same thing. He would constantly say, this is what I'm doing. And I would get on the phone with him and say, hey, how'd that go? And he'd say, oh, I didn't get it done yet. And he had some excuse. So he became the model for his team. He was screwing up and therefore his team had license to do the same thing. So I think it's it's critically important. It's interesting. I I became a dad seven years ago. And and by way of analogy, I think what I've learned over my seven year journey as a dad and my own time in leadership leading companies is that more of our behavior is caught than taught. Oh, I like that. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, kind of along the ideas of the story you're just sharing with us about that one CEO who was saying one thing, but allowing themselves to do another, he was communicating something confusing and telling his team, yeah, I actually am not going to reach my own commitments and I'm, I'm not going to honor my own commitments. And so therefore I'm not going to really expect you to either. Absolutely. So you talk a lot about, and we work with our clients on this as well. You talk a lot about um, being really clear for what organizations stand for, um, what, what their values are and how to define culture. Uh, this helps to create great alignment. It eliminates confusion um, and it increases engagement top to bottom. So you have some great tools and you referenced your book um, and practices from your book. Explain how we as coaches um, can help organizations to do this and some of the, the best practices you've seen in your career. Culture is one of those words that, you know, if you ask 10 different people what it is, you're going to get at least eight or nine different answers. And, and for me, culture is about a way of behaving within an organization. In fact, someone, I, I did a podcast interview for my podcast just yesterday, and, and the woman I was interviewing talked about brand culture, which I think is a great way to think about it. She said, it's almost like thinking of your brand from the inside out. And I love that way of thinking of it. And, and as a coach, I work with my clients on what I call the three V's of culture. The first V is values. And values are not you know, nice sounding words that you put on your website because you think it's going to look great to your to your clients. Values are non-negotiable behaviors that anchor your culture. It's taking what's best, what's right, what's most noble about your culture and boiling it up to three, four, five, six different behaviors that, that become non-negotiable. And I don't care if it goes on your website. I don't care if they sound pretty. It's more about internal than external. So there's values. It's one part of culture. The second V is vision, right? Are you, do you have a group of leaders that not only is clear on what the vision is, vision long-term, you know, 10, 15 year, big, hairy, audacious goal, your three-year highly achievable goal, not the, the leadership team not only needs to be clear on what the vision is, but they need to be evangelists of that vision, which also includes the almost never changing parts of the vision, like what's your purpose as an organization? What's your why? So the first V is values. Second V is vision. And the third V is vulnerability. And vulnerability is about how you treat each other on the team. Vulnerability means being able to, for example, give and receive feedback without fear of any retribution. It's about having a safe place on the leadership team. So I think the culture and, and being a healthy team is about those three Bs. I, I, I teach those and help my clients to live those. But the other piece of it is within my coaching practice, I do annual and quarterly planning with my clients. And, and depending on the client, that's either a you know, full day session or two day session with the leadership team. And part of building a healthy team, part of building a right culture is just ensuring we're having the right conversations and making the right commitments as a leadership team. Sometimes for me as a leader, it's stoking disagreement 
on the right. leadership team. Sometimes leadership teams automatically agree. And I had a client that said to me, and I told him I would steal this from him and not give him credit. Uh, so I'm sort of giving, I'm saying a client, I'm just not telling you who it is. Um, they, they have seven people on the leadership team. And he said, uh, if, if, if all seven of us agree, we've got six too many people in the room. And I like that. So there are times as a coach, I will stoke disagreement. And number one, that gets my clients comfortable disagreeing with each other. But it also makes sure that at the end of the day, they're aligning on an idea, on a strategy that may be better than what any of them could have come up with individually. I love that idea of kind of the stoking the disagreement kind of, you know, and putting some, a little bit of a, you know, an appropriate level of like kindling in the fire to get it going. It, it, I had an, an interesting experience with a client who I was working with in a group session and we got something like that going and somebody was really strong on one side and they were passionate about it. But what emerged was really cool as at the end of it was what we saw was that that person actually in the end changed, changed their mind after a passionate disagreement. And they were as committed to the opposite position as they were to their own at the beginning. Because what we what I find in my experience is that I think a lot of times conflict challenges our, our kind of preconceived notions, if you will. And it challenges what we think about. And so we either come back completely resolved to that or with a changed opinion and holding on firm to that. So I, I think that's critical. And I love what Lencioni talks about in his book, um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, where co avoiding conflict avoidance is something that's critical. Yeah, the other the, the other great book uh, that, that taught me a lot, and I now teach it to all my clients, is a book called Conversational Capacity. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the author, but there's only one book by that name, so look it up. And 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 real quick, the 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 idea of it is when you're in a debate or an argument, there are there's this continuum. And, and on the one end of the continuum is minimizing. Minimizing is saying, I probably don't have this right, but you know, this may not be important, but or I'm new here, but minimizing could also be not even saying anything for fear that you may look dumb or you know, it's not important. So on the one end is minimizing and that's not productive. On the other end is winning. And I see a lot of CEOs do this where their goal in a debate is to win the debate. And that shuts everybody down. What you wanna be is right smack in the middle, which is you are debating or arguing in order to gather the information the team needs to make the best decision. And if you think about it that way, then you can get emotional, you can get passionate, but you're going to do it productively and wind up with a better decision. Mm. And I think something that's critical that you've kind of, you've championed, and I've seen in a lot of your content, as you come into conversations like that, you mentioned earlier vulnerability, but it's called what you refer to as positive intent. Um, for those who maybe have not heard that phrase before or wonder or think they might know what it is, talk a little bit about that because um, I don't know about you, but positive intent is, is uh, I think, I don't think it's our first nature or it's our first inclination. It's not mine. And that's why I teach it and coach it because I'm pretty bad at it. I'm right but, there with and, you. And, and there's a uh, TEDx that I did uh, in Gainesville. And if you look up Mike Goldman TEDx, it's, it's called The Antidote to Anger. It talks about this, but very, very briefly, for most of us, we assume negative intent. 
And what I mean by that is when someone cuts us off on the highway, you know, I know the first thing I think, you know, if someone's going 85 miles an hour, cuts me off on the highway. I think, I picture there's a guy at the steering wheel laughing, knowing he's doing something incredibly dangerous, but he doesn't give a rip and he does it anyway. Right. You know, we, if someone throws a wrench in at a meeting and you think they're being a pain in the neck on purpose. And when we assume someone has negative intent, we get angry, we get frustrated, we lash out, we hurt our relationships, we lose our ability to solve the problem. But if we stop for a minute and we take this idea, what I call the law of positive intent, the law of positive intent says everyone's just trying to do the best they can with the resources they have. I don't know about you, but I've never, I, I, it's, I, I've been coaching and consulting. I've been in the business world for 35 plus years. I have never once met anyone who wakes up in the morning and says, what can I do to screw things up today? It just doesn't happen. But we emotionally kind of believe that sometimes that they do. So if we believe that everyone's just trying to do the best they can with the resources they have, it causes us to get curious instead of angry. Because by the way, it doesn't mean everyone's doing the right thing. This is not some, oh, the world is wonderful, you know, kind of philosophy. It's not that everyone's doing the right thing, but if we believe people are trying to do the right thing with the resources they have, and yet we don't agree with them, or yet we're unhappy with their behavior, it causes us to get curious to say, what do they know that I don't know? Or what do I know that they don't know? And we start asking questions and we have the ability to solve the problem versus getting angry, frustrated, lashing out and screwing things up even worse. Absolutely. So and what, what's really cool about this, though, is you don't you don't use the law of positive intent to simultaneously give somebody a free pass. You, you hold that together and kind of what's a really a powerful tension of on the one hand, I believe this person's doing the best with what they have. And this person is accountable to these results. So you talk a lot about um, evaluating your team. You know, you're champion of the quarterly talent assessment, as, as are we. Um, talk about how uh, you define what you refer to as an A player in that quarterly talent assessment and about how organizations should be looking to build uh, teams made up of A players. Yeah, so there is a as you said, there's a quarterly talent assessment, a framework I've built that I use, and uh, we calculate something called the talent density, which is actual key performance indicator. It's a specific measure of strength of talent within an organization. And I believe that's so important because I know, I have seen that the number one driver of profit growth is people growth. And yet we don't measure our people growth. And, you know, it's cliche, but, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure. So, so I've created this measure. And so, so your question was, what's an A player? And I'm going to change your language a little bit. And, and because I, I use that language for years, A player, B player, C player, toxic C player. And I've made a subtle change to say the, this is someone performing at an A level, performing mm. at a B level. Now that sounds like semantic BS, who cares? But the reason I made that change is because I was working with a client about a year ago 
And they were talking about folks who were performing at a B level. And they were talking about them as if that's who they were. As if 35 years ago, their mother gave birth to an eight pound, two ounce B player. You know, oh, that, you know, they just, you know, they don't stay late and they don't do any more than they need to do. And they do this and they don't do that. And I was like, wait a minute, time out. Is it possible that they're performing at this level because you're not leading them right? Because you're not motivating them, because you're not inspiring them, because you haven't been coaching them, because you're not doing regular one-on-one -on -one meetings with them. It's like, let's not say this is who they are. Let's say that's how they're performing right now. And part of it may be your fault. So the labels are really important. And especially, you know, at the A level, you say, well, it's okay to call someone an A player because that's a compliment. And it may be a compliment, but it's still dangerous. Because if I say, oh, Josh, he's an A player. I don't, I don't have to worry about him. I can go focus on my problem, folks. Well, if you are someone who's a superstar performing at an A level, is that what you want? For your boss now to ignore you because you're performing so well? Or is it most important that your leader spends more time with you because they're going to leverage you to be great? They're going to challenge you. They're going to re-recruit you. All those things. So number one, let's all be careful of our language. That all being said, when I talk about someone performing at an A level, it's two things. Number one, and this is kind of a, of course, Number one, it's about productivity. Are they blowing away all their productivity goals? If it's a salesperson, are they bringing in tons of revenue? If it's a, you know, a VP of marketing, are they blowing away their, uh, their goal on marketing qualified leads per week? So number one, it's about productivity. But just as importantly, if not more importantly, it's are they a culture fit? Are they making the people around them better or worse? Are they living your non-negotiable core values or not? And I say that may be more important than productivity because you can coach productivity. It's very difficult to coach core values because if someone's not living your core values, it doesn't make them a bad person. It does make them a bad fit for your organization and trying to get someone who's not, let's say you've got someone who's not a team player. They like to work by themselves. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. If I'm looking for someone on my team to go cure cancer, go sit in the corner and figure out how to cure cancer. I'm not necessarily worried if you're a team player, but for most of us being a team player is pretty important. But if you've got that person who likes to sit alone by themselves, solve a problem, other people just frustrate them and get in their way. It doesn't make them a bad person, but trying to coach them to be a better team player is trying to get them become, to become someone they are not. Yeah. And if they're threatened with job security, they may be able to do it for 90 days, but then they're going to go back to who they are. So it's both of those things. It's productivity and culture fit. And someone who is very high in both, those are people who I believe are performing at an A level. This is where I think Brad Giles' book is really helpful, where he talks about hiring and having a good hiring process because it's so critical. And it's a lot easier for everybody in the beginning to make sure that the person you're hiring, they can be a rock star 
performer, like you said, crushing their productivity goals. But if they're coming in, and I always kind of use the example of like a boat, you know, and um, if you've got a boat going, there's somebody behind it who's trying to ski behind the boat. If the wake's too much, it's going to be impossible for that person to ski and it's going to be difficult and really disruptive. And I think that this same goes for somebody you have that is performing as an A player, um, but they're not, they really don't believe those values. And as you said, I think that's a lot of the reason why after 90 days, leaders are going, what happened to the person in the interview? Even if, by the way, and, and I, I use sales as the example because this, it's an easy example and it happens more often in sales, is you've got a person that is blowing away their revenue goals. They're bringing in a ton of revenue, maybe more than anybody else, but they're not living the core values and they're toxic to the organization. Yeah. And you've got leaders that are terrified to do anything about it for fear of losing that revenue. But in the fear of losing that revenue, they are hurting everybody else around them. And they're making a joke of their culture and their core values. So I have, my, my model has A, B, C, and toxic C are the levels. And people say, well, what if you have a toxic A? Someone who's beating their goals, but they're not living the core values. And I say, there's no such thing as a toxic A. If you're not living the core values, you're what I call a toxic C, and you've got to fix that problem quick, or I don't care if they are the number one revenue producer in the organization, they do not belong in that organization if they're hurting the people around them. And I think with my clients, I see that a lot. There's a, there's a lot of reinstilling in the values. Like, do you believe in these values enough that you'd be willing to say goodbye to your most productive employee if they weren't living them? And you know, you get that, I'm sure you've seen as well, you kind of get that wince, like, you know, somebody's bracing themselves, like, I don't really want to get rid of that person. Well, if you believe in the core values you have as an organization enough, you will. And, and I've gone so far as to, and I do have that conversation, and normally it's, it's the leader, it's the CEO that's like, well, but, you know, I know that's a core value for everyone, but this person, I can't hold them to it because they're doing all these other great things. And what I've gone so far as to say, okay, that's your decision. And I'm not judging you right or wrong, but here's what I tell you. If you are only using your core values as a hammer to hit poor, produ poorly productive people over the head with, then your core values will become a joke. So I think you've got two choices, either do something about this highly productive person that's not living the core values. Either change your tune and make a move and do something. If you're not willing to do that, which I understand, then I believe your best move is to take the core values posters off the wall and off your website. Stop talking about your core values because they will become a joke if they are negotiable for some people, but not negotiable for others. Mm. A lot of this, I think, uh, I found has to do with what Pat Lencioni refers to as being the chief reminding officer, um, you know, and walking around and talking about the values consistently. And that accountability piece we were just referring to. Um, and, and so related to that, I, I read a fascinating study that the growth faculty published about actually earlier this week, which talked about learning and development expense. Um, and it says that obviously that's one of the first things that CFOs are going to be looking at to eliminate 
um, to tighten the belts. But this growth faculty study said that there's a 353% return on learning and development investments. And I think that's exactly how we need to be looking at them as investments for the for the reasons that we've been talking about for the past 20 or 25 minutes. So Mike, in your experience um, that you mentioned already, there's correlation between uh, people growth and net profit growth. Talk a little more about that. Yeah, I love that you're asking this because this is the topic of the book that I am writing as we speak, which the, and the tentative title is Grow Your People, Grow Your Profit. And, and I'm, and I'm going to use this 353%. I got to go look that up and get the study because what I have in, in researching this book, I found two other studies that, that I think are really important. Because I, I've seen anecdotally that, you know, as you grow your people, your profit grows, but but how do we make that real to, to your question? And uh, the Boston Consulting Group did a study of 1,200 leaders and found that the leaders that categorize themselves as talent magnets, and a talent magnet meant they scored high in these 20 different leadership and talent development uh, characteristics on an assessment. The talent magnets, their revenue grew 2.2 times faster. Their profit grew 1.5 times faster than the talent laggards, the folks that scored lower, lowest in those 20 categories. So the numbers proven out. There's also a Mercer Group study that I found. They're a big HR consulting organization that said, you know, the, the phrase a lot of companies put on this idea of what are we doing to coach our talent, develop our talent, train our talent, measure productivity of our talent, assess our talent. The phrase is performance management. And the Mercer Group did a study and found that only 2% of leaders believe their performance management process was adding exceptional value. Wow. 2%, which is like, if, if we believe that people growth drives profit growth, that 2% number, 2% of performance management processes are adding exceptional value, that's a scary statistic. And what it says is the way we've been doing it is wrong. We're not measuring performance in the right way. We're not coaching our people in the right way. You know, the annual performance review, I think, is the worst process that's ever been invented by man. Amen. It makes no sense. Could you imagine, uh, could you imagine a, a, a baseball, you know, a manager on a baseball team saying, well, let's just play the whole season then at the end of the season, I'll let everybody know how they did. It's silly. You wouldn't even do that on a little league baseball team. And yet we're doing that in our companies. So it's so important. It's my next book. It's a piece of software that, that I'm developing. So yeah, I, I and that 353%, thank you for that. That's, that's going to be another page in my book when I do, when I go back and, and learn more about what was in their study. There's, a, there's another great study too. And I mean, I'm so with you in the performance reviews. I was just writing about this um, recently. Like it, it's almost cruel 
you know, you see so many em employees who show up for performance reviews and there's anxiety on both sides of the table. You've got the employer who's anxious about whatever they've got to talk about in most cases. You've got the employee who's wondering what's going to be used as a weapon against them. And they come in and it's just cruel. When something happened 10 months ago, let's just talk about that in real time and deal with that. And I think that's actually the value also of the quarterly talent assessment. And I don't even think we should wait that long. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer. Well, yeah, the, the quarterly talent assessment, in my mind, is a chance for the leaders on a team to get together and discuss one level down what's going on with their talent and who do they need to do more coaching for? And, you know, all that that's quarterly. But I'm with you. In fact, I've got on on my podcast is called the Better Leadership Team Show. And, and I've got one episode called Let's Dump the Annual Performance Review. And in there, I talk about a one-on-one a -on -one coaching framework that I've started coaching my leaders on, which is a, you know, at the very least every, every other week, but at best every week, having a one-on-one -on -one with each of your direct reports. And I believe there's two different types of one-on-ones that you alternate between one, one I call the feedback and accountability meeting. Feedback and accountability, if you're the leader, you own the agenda, you're meeting with your direct report, giving them feedback on how they're doing, holding them accountable to their goals, to their KPIs, giving them tips and techniques on how to improve. That's the feedback and accountability meeting. And then on alternate weeks, it's a coaching session. Mm. Coaching is, it's not my agenda as a leader, it's the direct reports agenda coming in and saying, hey, here's what I need help on. So I believe that should happen every single week. The idea, because some some of my, you know, my clients say, well, we no, I get you. I hate the annual performance review too. We do it semi-annually. Well, that still sucks, you know, totally or we do it quarterly. That's still not very good. It's better than annually. It's got to be done real time. And also, I think there should be a formal weekly process. That's really good. Yeah. I'm actually working on a workshop right now talking about communication and one-on-ones are part of that because I've, I've it, early in my career, I was so ill-equipped to do them as a leader and I've learned that they were just so ineffective. And then I sat on the other side of them as an employee and I'm like, well, this is highly ineffective as well. So something I've been working on. Another interesting stat that you might want to look at for your book, Gallup this week published a poll that came out that said that less than 25% for the past, going back at least to 2016 on the graph, Gallup said less than 25% of employees feel as if their leaders are managing their performance in a way that will create outstanding results. Love so, it. I mean, oh, yeah. and, and it's Gallup's low. always got that kind of stuff. That's great. It is. And then you add together, interestingly, you're two, the 2% you're talking about. So wonder why the employees feel like it's less than 25% because the leaders feel like 2% effective. So it's, uh, yeah, it needs to be reinvented. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised the employee number is that high given the leader's number, right? I actually was too, um, but really interesting, interesting information. Well, Mike, I know everybody that's listening is going to be better for having you on the show and your insights and your thought leadership. We're grateful for all of that. Thank you so much for having me. If somebody wants to learn more about some of the ideas you talked about here, Mike, where would you refer them to? Yeah, they could, they could either go to my website, which is mike-goldman. Dot com. I've got a YouTube channel and the handle is, is at Mike Goldman coach, which is the same as my, my uh, 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 Instagram 
handle. And uh, maybe the best place is I'm really proud of my podcast. And if you're listening to this, it must mean you listen to podcasts. So my podcast is called The Better Leadership Team Show. Well, I'm a regular listener as well. So it's a great podcast to listen to. Thanks so much. You can tune back in next week for another episode of High Impact, a podcast for leaders. Thanks for listening.